Wake up, everyone. It's time for the Steve Noble Show, where biblical Christianity meets the everyday issues of life in your home, at work, and even in politics. Steve is an ordinary man who believes in an extraordinary God. And on his show, there's plenty of grace and lots of truth, but no sacred cows. Call Steve now at 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Or check him out online at thestevenobleshow.com. And now, here's your host, Steve Noble. Welcome back. Hope you're doing well. Of course, uh, 22 years ago today was uh, 9-11, and we all know exactly where we were uh, when that happened. It's really strange to have students uh, all the time, really, for several years now that <clears throat> it's just uh, they just hear about it, right? They, they, they hear about it from parents. They know what's out there. You say 9-11. I'm like, how many of you know? And I say 9-11, what that is? And they all raise their hands. Uh, but none of them were alive, which is really bizarre. But, of course, uh, you and I were. And so for many of us, that's kind of our uh, the day JFK was assassinated. People know where they were. Uh, Pearl Harbor. For my parents, they knew Pearl Harbor because they lived through it. Uh, JFK because they lived through it. And then 9-11 because they lived through it. And certainly uh, it's true for all of us today. And so I was uh, at Ground Zero on November 9th of 2001 and spent the day with a FDNY officer named Tom Denard, uh, engine 161 and ladder, uh, I think it was 231, in uh, Brooklyn, Red Hook, which is right across the river, one of the most violent housing projects in America, at least it was at the time. And so we were uh, driving up there from Raleigh, where I live now, and we were going to visit my sister who had moved to Yardley, Pennsylvania, north of um, Philadelphia. And actually, one of the airline pilots had been from Yardley. And we were going up there for a visit anyway. And then uh, God just opened some doors and uh, a guy that uh, used to work for me in the house painting business. And we raised some money and we wanted to give the money to a firefighter's widow. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't it was pretty early on in the process, if you recall, that Bill O'Reilly really took the bull by the horn and was questioning where are these mil- literally millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, were being donated and where was it going? So I was concerned about that and would have preferred at the time uh, me and my former uh, employee had got our guys together. We painted a couple of houses and uh, Sherwin Williams gave us the paint for almost for nothing. And so our guys did uh, donated their time. And so we had about five thousand dollars to give away. But didn't want to give it to a charity. And so it was a matter of we got to find a uh, how do we get to a widow of a firefighter? No small thing in October of 2001. And so I called my dad, uh, who I quote at the end of the show every day, ever forward, and told him the idea. And and of course, my dad was always uh, go straight to the top, (laughs) no matter what the situation was. Uh, uh, Call the mayor's office. Right. Rudy Rudy Giuliani. Sure. Of course. Uh, I'm sure they'll they'll help me out. (laughs) It was so it was so preposterous, but that's what I did. And I called the mayor's office and explained to Steve Noble from Raleigh, North Carolina. And this was 2001. Okay, this is pre-radio, pre-activism, pre-call to action. I'm just we're just a homeschooling family and I'm running my house painting company. That's it. And uh, pretty and getting more involved at church. And so I, I literally called the mayor's office of Steve Noble, Raleigh, North Carolina, a little house painting company. And uh, we're trying to give money that we raise uh, directly to the widow of a firefighter, and we would like the, the the firefighter to be Hispanic with children because that represented a lot of the guys that we work with. And that and they they gave me a couple of leads, and one of them was the uh, 
Hispanic Firefighters Association. That seemed to make some sense. And another one was called the Widows and Children's Fund. And I emailed or however I did back in 2001, back in the dark ages and left some messages and called the Widows and Firefighters Association and, and didn't really get anywhere and, and uh, left some messages and then called back. I remember, I was, I was raised by a member of the greatest generation and a salesman and a manager. So you keep calling until people tell you no. And so eventually got this lady on the phone at the Widows and Firefighters Association and uh, and that that's all they were doing was trying to help out these families and stuff. And uh, her name was Fran. And I've given her my spiel, right? And she's like, well, hold on a second. She literally pulls the phone away from her face. Remember, this is back in the day. It probably had a cord on it. And she explains to these people in the office, wherever this was, somewhere in New York City. Hey, there's this guy from Raleigh, and they want to give money to a Hispanic, uh, a widow of a Hispanic firefighter with children. And people just start throwing names around. The first name I remember hearing, remember, this is 22 years ago, was Angel Warbay, J-U-A-R-B-E. I write that down. And then somebody else said, hey, didn't Evelyn Rodriguez just have a baby? You say, yeah. yeah blah, blah, blah. And I write that down, and she comes, Fran comes back and says, okay, did you hear any of that? Uh Yes, ma'am. I, I wrote down a couple of names. Okay, that's all I can do for you. Good luck. Bye. Click. Now you, now you're like, okay, <laughs> what, what do you do with this? I, I couldn't go anywhere with the Angel Warbay thing. Couldn't figure it out. Uh, but then, but then Rodriguez, Evelyn Rodriguez. So I, I find my way. Remember, this is 22 years ago. The internet. You don't ask Siri. Uh, it's not that easy. So uh, digging around on the internet and find my way to. A listing of all the different firefighters, 343 firefighters that had died, and then where, where, what, like what engine uh, company or ladder company they were in. So this is FDNY, okay, New York City, the melting pot of America. How many uh, firefighters that died that day on 9-11 do you think had the last name Rodriguez? I'll wait. Uh, the answer would be one. One, one named Rodriguez. Anthony Rodriguez, a probationary officer, had just finished up his training, was a probie, uh, and was last seen right near the hotel at the base of the South Tower on 9-11 when he died. So then I'm like, okay, I find this. And then I find the engine and ladder company he's, he was in, which was in uh, Brooklyn. And then I'm trying to find any information for that. I can't find it. So I called the FDNY and I'm like, do you guys have like regional offices? And they had one for Brooklyn and one for the Bronx and, you know, for the boroughs. And so then I called there and I, I it's just, hey, my name is Steve Noble, come from Raleigh, North Carolina, blah, 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 blah. And the guy goes, we, uh, we're not allowed to give out the inside phone numbers of individual firehouses. That's not public information. Back to my dad, you know, in, in a negotiation, the first one to talk loses. So I just kept my mouth shut. And the guy said, well, I'm going to give it to you anyway. So he gives me the phone number. So I hang up with him. I pick up the phone, I dial the number, firehouse, and then I'm back to my spiel. Hi, this is Steve Noble. This guy's like, oh, you, know, you got you to call back later and ask for, uh, ask for an officer. There's nobody here right now. I'm like, okay, uh, what time should I call back around 6 o'clock? Who do I ask for? Just ask for the officer in charge. You don't have a name? No, they're, they're still moving all over the city because we lost so many officers, so we don't know who's going to be here. Just call back at 6. I'll leave a, no- I'll leave a note. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure you will. And so, okay, thanks. Bye. Click. And I call back that evening, 6 o'clock. Right on the notes. Firehouse. Hey, yeah, this is Steve Noble. I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm supposed to ask for the officer in charge. Yeah, hold on a second. I'll pick it up there. When we come back, I made a promise to never stop telling this story, so I'm not. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, the Steve Noble Show, 9-11, as I do every year, as close as I can to, to 9-11. Of course, today is the day, 22 years later. Uh, I had a very intense experience uh, in, in November of 2001, November 9th, to be exact. I was in New York City. I was in, uh, I was, went to Ground Zero. I went to a firefighter's widow's house. That was Evelyn Rodriguez. If you're looking on the uh, Facebook or Rumble, you see on the TV behind me, you see a picture of me quite a few years ago. I was 22. And then a mom holding a newborn and then her son. The mom is Evelyn Rodriguez. That's Anthony's wife. Their son, Derek, and then their uh, brand new baby girl, Morgan, who was born on September 14th. Evelyn was scheduled for a C-section on the 12th. She said, I'm not coming in until Anthony comes home. Anthony was not coming home. And so by the time the 14th rolled around, she was such a mess that that she went in and, and they had the baby. She had the baby. And that was Morgan, who she's holding in her arms. And then on the TV behind me, you see the picture next to them, found out several years later. This is about like 2015, 2016, um, that they had, they had moved to South Carolina. They were living in Mount Pleasant, which is where my parents were living. And that's them as teenagers. So that was a shocker to see that. Anyway, back to the story. So I called the uh, uh, Brooklyn... I think, yeah, Brooklyn, FDNY, and the guy's like, gives me the phone number for the firehouse, which they're not supposed to do. So I called the firehouse back that night at 6 o'clock. Supposed to talk to the officer in charge. Yeah, just a second. Captain Ford. This guy gets on the phone. Captain Ford. Hi, Captain Ford. This is the same line I've been using over and over. This is Steve Noble. I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm about to say, I own a house. And he goes, hold on a second. Uh, Remember, these are New Yorkers. Hold on a second. Are you the painter guy? Yes, sir. I'm, I'm the painter guy. Okay, so so what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get some money up here or something for Evelyn? And I said, yes, sir. Actually, I'm. We're, my wife and I and our three kids are coming up to Yardley, Philadelphia, to visit my sister. And I really wanted to try to come in and give the money to her personally. Uh, I don't even know if that's possible. He goes, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll take care of it. Uh, here, write this name down. Uh, Tom Denard. He's one of our guys here at, at this engine company, and uh, we're ta- we've taken him offline, so he's dealing with family and friends of, of the guys that we lost here at the fire station, at this particular fire station. And so uh, when you get into town, uh, when you come in, and I tell him November 8th, he goes, okay, call, I'll tell Tom you're coming. Call him that night, and he'll set it up, and, and he'll come get you. You take the train in. Uh, when would you come in? I'd like the next morning. Okay, he'll take the, you take the train in, and Tom will come, I'll have Tom come get you, and uh, we'll take care of you. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. You don't know me from Boo. So just give me the address of the firehouse, and I'll find my way to the firehouse. He goes, nope. Tom will get you. When you get here, just call that evening, and uh, I'll get you connected with Tom, and we'll take care of it. Yes, sir. So we drive up there and literally got there that evening. I call down there, and that's the first time I talked to Tom Denard, who is just an incredible guy. What time are you getting in in the morning? I think I get in at like 9. He's like, oh, I- few expletives here and there. He goes, that's like the worst time you could get in, but that's fine. Uh, come out to seventh Avenue or whatever. He's just telling me where to go and, uh, I'll, I'll pull up and I'll pick you up and then we'll, we'll go from there. I'm like, okay, well, how do I, how will I know it's like, how will I find you? And he goes, Oh, I'll be in a big giant FDNY white van. You I'll be impossible to miss. <laughs> okay. fine. <laughs> Take the train in. That's the first time I'd seen uh, Manhattan in a long time. And to see it without the Twin Towers was so bizarre. And when you get to the train station down there, there's still, at this point, November 9th, 2001, there's still pictures all over the place. And and they had put up uh, plywood sheets where people were putting pictures of lost loved ones and friends. And so that stuff was all over the place. And, and I walk out, and I'm like, I don't see an FDNY uh, white van anywhere. So I call them, 
And he's like, I'm sorry, I, just, I almost got in a wreck, I almost beat the blah, 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 blah. And uh, I'll be there in a minute. So literally, he pulls up in the middle of the intersection, in the middle of the intersection, and just stops. And he's not like in the lane next to the street. He's in the middle lane next to the curb. He's in the middle lane. <laughs> so he just stops. Everybody else stops. And I just walk out there, khaki pants. I've got a bag with some baby clothes in it with some <laughs> pink and pink uh, paper sticking out. I mean, it's just uh, not exactly my most... Uh, toxic masculinity look and I jump in and he's hilarious and he's like yeah we can pretty much do whatever we want in the city right now and uh and then we take off and he's like um uh okay so where do you want to go first yeah I don't know I mean would it be too much to ask to to go to ground zero at some point today he goes oh no I'll get you in there uh let's do this let's go to the firehouse Evelyn's expecting us and so we'll go out there and I'm like what and we just started driving, and he's taking me by where the firehouse is, which is Red Hook, across the river. Uh, Red Hook is what it's called by a terrible housing complex, one of the most violent in the country at the time. And he's explaining all that to me, and then we don't take the exit. And I'm like, dude, where are we going? Oh, we're going to Evelyn's house. I didn't know that. I'd written a long letter. I had all this stuff. I had the check. I thought I was just going to give it to the firehouse, and they'll give it to Evelyn. But no, we're going to her house, a tiny little row house, I think, in the Bronx. And now I'm... This is pre-really bold Steve. Okay, so now I'm just pretty much quaking in my boots. And uh, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know I was going to meet her. And he goes, oh, oh, yeah, she's expecting us. So you can imagine, or maybe you can't. I mean, the, the tension, the discomfort, the nervousness. And then we pull up, and, and he could tell I'm nervous. And I'm like, uh, he goes, just follow my lead. It'll be fine. I've gotten to know Evelyn pretty well. And. It'll be fine. She's expecting you, so no big deal. Yeah, okay. So we went in, and uh, Derek is six at the time playing around, and Morgan's asleep on the couch, this tiny little row house, and, and she does not look good. And uh, we're just talking and getting to know her. And at one point, I'm like, you know, Derek is really fun, cute little kid. And I'm like, D- does he uh, understand what, what's happening here? And she goes, well, no. She, he understands that his dad's not coming home. He just doesn't really understand why. And then at one point I was like, you know, how, how's it going? Like, like, are you getting help from the FDNY, from the city? She goes, yeah, everybody thinks we're getting all kinds of money, but I haven't actually gotten any money yet. And it's been hard enough just to get Anthony's pay. And then I gave her the check and it was all kind of awkward. And we took some pictures and that, uh, that will adjust your perspective uh, fast on pretty much everything, which it did. And then we left there and we're, he's like, well, before we go to ground zero, let's, uh, we'll go by the firehouse. And we spent... probably an hour and a half by the firehouse and had lunch there. I think the best corn chowder I've ever had in my life. And all these guys are hilarious. He's giving me a tour of the whole place. They have a huge gym that they built. Arnold Schwarzenegger had come by and I had lunch with these guys. All of a sudden the alarm goes off. These guys all get up and take off. And Tom doesn't look away from his corn chowder. And at one point, I mean, these guys are scattering. he, He looks over at me. He goes, raises, he goes, uh, oh man, I'm so sorry. Do you want something to drink? I sure. What, what do you got? Coke, so you know what, whatever. And uh, and they had pictures all over the place, cards from people. He told me story after story after story, starting with nine eleven. He was in uh, Long Island surfing that day when it happened, and he got this on his beeper. He got a code that he didn't even know what it was, but it was essentially every single FDNY personnel wherever you are get to your firehouse. And and so by the time he got to Ground Zero, it was about midnight that night. And they had staging areas and everything, and these guys are all upset and don't want to just sit around. 
So at one point he said, we blew that whole thing off and we just went in there. And he just started digging and they had to keep changing their boots because everything was so hot that their boots were melting. And they're just desperately trying to find any sign of life, anything. And they're finding personal belongings and they're finding, occasionally they would find um, a body part and then everything shuts down. Because that day, I mean, that night, overnight, it just became holy ground. And then just Tom's just telling me these stories literally all day. And so after we left the firehouse, we actually ended up at Ground Zero. I'll tell you a little bit about that when we came back. And why do I tell this story every single year around 9-11? We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, the Steve Noble Show on the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, sharing the story that I've shared every year uh, until uh, now, and I'll, I'll keep sharing it. And used to put it uh, when I had my house painting company after that in November 9th of 2001 when I was there and then came back. And uh, at the end of that day, when Tom dropped me off at the at the at the train station to take the train back out to Philadelphia to, to reunite with my family. I mean, I'll tell you about that conversation in a second. But I, I wrote up this story and it had pictures that I had taken and I have some scans of those now. And uh, one of them's behind me on the TV and and had that in my sales book. So every time I went to a house, I would visit five or 600 houses a year for my house painting company. And that story was in there. And so all those people saw it. This is pre-radio, pre-activism, 2002, 2003, 2004 is when I called to action started and I got to be an activist. Radio wasn't until 2007. Um, and so uh, we go to Ground Zero and, and Tom Parks and he's explaining, he's like, listen, have you heard about the smell? Uh, yeah. He goes, I've got some masks if you want one. Uh, this. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want to blunt any of this, what I'm about to experience. And, uh, he's like, all right, cool. Well, here, we're going to go through all these different layers of security. You're going to see a lot of different police and firefighters from around the country. Don't say anything. Let me do all the talking and then, uh, we'll get you right in there. I said, okay. So we literally parked blocks away and, and you could see they had these little, pedestrian things that went across the street right around ground zero that were there that all the windows are shattered and everything. So we're making our way around and he keeps staring at all these different guys they are all in their dress uniform coming and going. And I'm like, what are you trying to figure out? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to see where they're from. And they would talk to guys. as And then finally we get to the, the main checkpoint feds, FBI stuff all over the place. Uh, police. And he's like, Hey, he's, he's a friend of one of the families engine one sixty one, blah, 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 blah. And then we walked in. And then if you remember, there was this deck, literally a deck that they had built. And like when, when uh, Rumsfeld was there or uh, Colin Powell was there, they would, they would broadcast and do these interviews from this deck, right? Like literally overlooking the site. And that's where we went. So we're standing up there and I'm literally looking into the belly of the whole thing, right? I'm looking into this giant hole. They're digging down now. They're still trying to take down buildings four, five, and six. They got wrecking balls. They have fire engines spraying water. Because even two months later, they'd run into hot spots and all these flames would come flying up. And you're, you can't take it all in. I'd never be able to adequately describe for you uh, what it was like to see all this. And they have all this kind of, uh, you know, like snow fencing, the orange stuff, except this, this stuff was more like crimson color. And it's hanging down from, you know, relatively tall buildings, 20, 25, 30-story buildings around the site because there's so much damage there. And you're looking around trying to take it all in. But on the railing, there's all these handwritten notes because it was basically just friends and family that were getting in there. 
and they're writing notes to their loved ones that died on 9-11. So now I'm feeling like an interloper, right? I'm like, I, what am I doing here? And Tom was just reassuring and, and, uh, and he's, and I had a camera with me and he goes like, he's like, dude, uh, uh, do you want some pictures? I'm like, uh, am I allowed? He goes, well, no. I mean, it's a federal crime scene. You can't take any pictures, but, but, but I can probably sneak a few. <laughs> like, okay, there you go. There's my public admission. Tom took a couple pictures in there. Then there's these private security guys show up to my right. And I'm like, these guys look pretty intense. And I'm talking to Tom and we're, and, and then all of a sudden I look back over to my right a couple minutes later and I'm like, uh, Hey Tom, uh, you see who that is right there? He's like 10 feet away from me. He's like, no, no, who's that? I said, uh, that's Benjamin Netanyahu, the uh, prime minister from Israel. And Tom's like, blankety blank. He's probably not a safe person to be around. Let's go. And so we took off. He took me by this area that was set up by the airline people that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teddy bears uh, that they had set up along this walkway. And that was like the memorial for the flight crews and stuff. And then we walked down this sidewalk that was kind of angled down and then we came around and that's when we came to the FDNY Port Authority and all of them and their and their little setup. Like the little pop up pop up like cover that you would take to a like a ball game or something, right? When you're tailgating. And then there's the uh, one shot of you can look this up online, the three hundred and forty three firefighters and then the other one with the paramedics and all these other guys. But the thing that was so difficult about being there is again, this was personal space. I'm like, I'm like on holy ground and there's all these notes and pictures and wedding albums. And, and the little kid had written a, a birthday card. Uh, you know, dear, dear dad, we still celebrate your birthday, even though you're dead. I love you. And wedding pictures and CDs of favorite albums. I mean, this is like intensely personal. And you know, it's quiet, eerily quiet, even though you're in downtown Manhattan and they're tearing buildings down, eerily quiet. And then, uh, so we spent, I don't know, hour, hour and a half down there. And then we, we're walking back to the van and then he's like, okay, I'm going to weave our way out and then I'll, I'll get you back to the train station. Cause he dropped me off at the train station at four, picked me up at 9am, dropped me off at four. And, uh, he's like, we're driving around. We come around ground zero. We come around where uh, building seven had fallen, which was such a bizarre thing still is. And he's like, hey, have you have you seen on the TV like for the, ever since it happened, like all these people that are here and uh, and and they're like cheering and stuff. Do you remember those guys? I'm like, yeah, he's like some of them are still here. Like They're here 24 seven. You can come out of here in the middle of the night and some of them will be here. He's like, oh, here, here they are. And we're driving out. This is the big highway that takes you along the, the river on the west side of Manhattan. And and they see him coming in the FDNY van. And he's like, watch this. I love this part. And he puts his arm out. He goes, look. And all his, all his hair is standing up on, on his arms. <laughs> and he's got his windows down. And he's honking the horn. And all these people stand up. And they've got flags. Remember those days? And they're like, yeah. And they're just screaming for him like it's the Super Bowl or something. And he's screaming back at them. And I'm like, hey, what am I doing here? Why am I here? And I apologized to him a bunch that day because I felt bad for taking his, I took his whole day. I'm not even a family member. I'm just some Yahoo from Raleigh. And, uh, and so at one point he's like, hey, Steve, if you say that again, I'm going to beat the out of you. 
He's a New Yorker, right? FDNY. What do you expect? He goes, listen, uh, if we could get every single, if we could do this with every single American, uh, we would. So you're, you're not putting anybody out. Uh, we appreciate that you're here. This means a lot to us that you're here. So knock that off. Quit saying that. And, uh, and he had gotten like T-shirts for our kids. He kept asking me how old they were, and he gave me an FDNY never forget baseball cap and these T-shirts and stuff. And he goes, "Listen, I'm I'm only gonna. You want to pay me back? You feel like you got to do something? I'm gonna ask you. Do one thing. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna, I'll ask you this. Here's here's the deal. Uh, tell people what you experienced here today, and don't stop telling them. You know, never forget what you experienced here. Never forget what you saw. Never forget this day." And tell as many people as you can. He goes, promise me that. And I said, I promise you, I will. And that was 22 years ago. And then it all comes flooding back. And the preciousness of life, like James talking about your life is a mist. It's here and then it's gone. And that's true. Uh, do you live accordingly? Uh, do you value what's actually valuable? Uh, I'm sure when Anthony went off to work that day, uh, he thought he'd see his wife and his son and their baby's going to be born a couple days later. It's a beautiful sunny day and he died. Whether he met uh, Jesus face to face that day, I don't know. I hope so. But that was a perspective shift. And it also showed me before call to action started in 2004, before anything, I'm just, we're homeschooling, running my house painting company. I'm just a normal bloke doing his thing. And it showed me that uh, we're capable of so much more than just paying the bills. And that, and that and I'm not talking about me individually i just mean us as humans as people made in the image of god which is why i love the movie ordinary angels when it comes out um because that's the deal i mean any one of us we're all capable of that why are we capable of that because you're made in the image of god so you're capable of incredible things yes horrific things like the 19 hijackers but incredible things too and so that that experience unlocked this understanding in me that I, I could I could I could do some things. I could step up to the plate. I could make a difference in some people's lives who, whose last name is not noble. And that's what birthed the rest of my life to that from that point to here was that experience. November 9th, two thousand and one. That just providing for my own and running my little business, doing your job, paying the bills. I think uh, we settle for a whole lot less than what the Lord wants to give us. And that just unlocked something in my life that God would move on that a couple years later. The next year, off to, off to Kenya, two years later, off to Kenya, called to action, started radio, teaching, all that stuff. But it all started in New York City on November 9th, 2001. I have not forgotten. I never will forget. and I'll never stop bringing it up. This is Steve Nolte. Here we go.
Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, the Steve Noble Show, Shifting Gears. Thank you for your uh, patience and your indulgence. And uh, I, I tell that 9-11 story every year. Uh, sometimes uh, 9-11 falls on one of the days of the broadcast, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but made that promise on November 9th, 2001, to never forget, to keep telling that story. And so I kept telling the story ever since then. When I got on the radio in 2007 on Saturdays for three years, I would tell it whatever Saturday was right before 9-11. I would tell it then. And uh, I've been telling it here on The Daily Show uh, ever since that. I started on The Daily uh, radio program, which was February of 2011 is when The Daily uh, Show started. So uh, thank you for your attention and just continue to pray for those families and the people that were left behind. Because there's a whole lot of them. And uh, we can't ever forget that. We need to continue to learn those lessons and talk about learning. We'd love to talk to our good friend David Fisher from Landmark Capital. Little Money Monday update. David, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great, my brother. Good to hear from you. Thanks for calling in and thanks for your time as always. This is a fascinating passage of scripture. The book of Acts is fascinating (laughs) anyway. But then uh, uh, with Agrippa talking to Paul, Paul uh, by God's grace, had a chance to uh, share in front of a lot of very important people. This is Acts 26. So let's start there, and then we'll dive in. Verse 28 and 29, then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Verse 29, Paul replied, short time or a long time, I pray to God that not only you, but all those listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. <laughs> so this is, it really is an amazing verse. Here, just picture <laughs> this. He's about ready to be crucified, and he has to be crucified upside down. And he is now trying to witness to the king, not to save his soul, but to save the king's soul, yeah. because Paul's already saved. <laughs> and he understands it's not his role to persuade. He's praying for King Agrippa yeah, that... Yeah the heart of the king would be truly in the hand of the Lord, the, the scripture says, and not just there stopping at the king, that Paul in his last days or day will really be a reflection and a witness to the people that's in this court that's watching how King Agrippa and Paul are interacting. The human flesh would say, let me rip into this king, Yeah. but the Spirit of God says, I have mercy on his soul. And so as we, I challenge all of us in our daily lives to move more towards Mm -hmm. the love and compassion of of Christ, because that's what influences the world, Christian and non-Christian alike. And it's really what our last breath, as we look back, it's the testament of how well we did that. That's right. And and, uh, placing our emphasis on things that last forever as opposed to temporary things. And then Paul would later write, of course, pray for those in authority over us. He's talking about Nero at the time. I think any uh, elected official, any powerful person, we tend to think about their politics before their soul. And uh, Paul thought about their soul and probably didn't pay a whole lot of attention to their politics because there's nothing that could be done about it at the time. But that was, uh, yeah, yeah, short time or long, I pray that God, not, not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I, I love that little part there at the end. And, and Paul was about his father's business. He was about the kingdom, uh, capital K, not little K, kingdom. It's such a great yeah. passage, uh, David, as always. Thank you for uh, listening to the Holy Spirit. And, and just I, I just love to see what he drops into you uh, every Monday when we do an update. So thank, thank the Lord for that, and thanks for your obedience there. So uh, bank failures. 
Uh, we haven't talked about that in a while. Anything happening there? A little update on bank failures. I know it's not exactly the most charming topic. It is not the most charming topic, uh, but there is in the wings or in the wind uh, more bank failures possibly coming. Let's go back in time to earlier this year in January. We we're talking about how we might have some bank challenges, and that surely uh, reared its head. They had what you call unrealized losses. In other words, the, if a bank owned a, let's say, a treasury, and they bought it for $100,000, but its liquid value is worth $80,000, they're upside down. It's an unrealized loss. So back then, they, these banks did not have to market the values telling the world that I'm upside down, we're at a loss. Word got out that they were upside down when some uh, very smart analysts put it together. And so we had bank failures, Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank. Those bank losses were actually $105 billion, but the unrealized losses were only 46. So the $46 billion, when it became news, it was run to the exit, get your money out of the bank. That caused bank failure to the tune of over twice as much. Today, I say all that to say this today. Today we are seeing $558 billion of unrealized bank losses currently. I said we're going to have a financial bank problem that will probably start to rear its head in the fall. We're approaching that uh, timeline. And let's just, we haven't talked about this either, but August 8th and August 22nd, Moody's and S&P Global Ratings slash the ratings of regional banks because they saw what we're talking about. They have unrealized losses, interest rates are high, there's been massive deposit outflows according to Bloomberg News, and the research by S&P 500, or S&P Bloomberg Ra uh, Global Ratings, get my facts here right, sorry, um, right. that it's tough in this environment, they're saying, and that's why these five banks have been downgraded, and they're saying there's a decline in deposits there's been a, a squeeze in liquidity in the current banks they're talking about that's left over. Uh, and for those reasons, they've devalued the ratings, and this makes up a large part of their liquidity, and that has fallen. So as we move forward one to two years into the future, we will see more commercial real estate um, loans being having to be something done with it. That's a big gap. This unrealized losses will probably escalate. Do not be surprised. I'm not yeah. being prophesying this, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more bank failures and another trigger of what we saw in January, February, and March. Yeah, which means we should all probably be paying attention to the health of our own banks and not waiting until the day something like that might happen, but to find out how are they doing now. This week, uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is coming out. <clears throat> I don't know that... Uh, I pulled this up, and I don't know if I sent this to you the other day. It showed, uh, like, all the uh, employment numbers uh, revised each month and how much the initial – they would say the initial employment numbers and then how many jobs we added, and then numbers revised downwards. So just going back a few months, uh, how much the government would actually revise it down. So th that's why I said we can't always trust their numbers. Really, you can. Uh, go back a month, revised down 16%. The month before, down 50%. That month before, down 17%. Month before, down 26%. So they tell you one thing up front, and then the actual numbers come out later. So what's the deal with the CPI this week? What can we expect? What does it mean? First of all, is a little refresher, and, and how important is it? So it's coming out on the 13th. It is a indicator is our price is going up or going down. Consumer Price Index, that's CPI. 
so the Federal Reserve is kind of doing a pause a little bit. They might be raising rates on November 1st. They're kind of waiting on this month's report and next month's. The Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland is saying they expect an increase uh, by 3.8% to accelerate from 3.2%. So that means prices are going to go up, they're saying. Or prices have moved up, and that's what they think they're going to report it as. Uh, when you exclude food and energy, that's another uh, aspect of this yeah. report. They're also saying those are going to increase. So this makes it a very challenging environment for the government, for the Federal Reserve. It just compiles everything we've been talking about. We are certainly not out of the woods yet, and we could have some sort of recession. In fact, I think it's inevitable. Are people still talking about, hey, we'll have a soft landing. Don't worry about it. Yes, uh, but others, that, you know, it's kind of like the little boy who cried wolf. Just because <laughs> he cried wolf... It doesn't mean he was wrong, because ultimately he was right. Yeah. And there's a lot of people saying, you know, soft landing, soft landing, soft landing, never happened. They just, I think they just pushed this out six months down the road. Jamie Dimon, CEO of the largest bank in the United States, J.P. Morgan, says, quote, it's a huge mistake to think the economy will boom and with so many risks out there, end quote. Bank of America says, quote, soft landing is all currently the rage. But there ain't a bond manager in the world that manages more than $150 billion who doesn't think that there won't be a hard landing. So let's put that into perspective. The big money of the world, and $150 billion is not that much money. So pretty much every bond fund manager is saying, this is not a soft landing environment. This is a hard landing environment. So we're going to see, you know... This is this whole thing is based upon a house of cards, and I love my country, yep. but it's a debt-driven growth, not a growth on fundamentals. That's right. Debt-driven right. growth is the slow death trap growth. Growth. I've been saying this for for years. A big portion of the population is now coming to awareness of this. Mm-hmm. They're called foreigners. They're getting rid of the dollar. The cost of debt is going higher, not lower. So today, Steve, we're staring upon the greatest national debt and global debt bubble in the history of the world. Right. And we're like drunken sailors, and we got to pay that credit card debt because Uncle Sam is taking away the credit card. Our rich uncle and he can't spend any more money so we got to pay this somehow some way and that brings us to an impasse a major problem that's why central banks are buying gold and silver uh and uh, gold excuse me and silver is another tool in the portfolio yeah and and it's obviously reacting it's a it's a part of this story you keep talking about central banks buying gold and the people that aren't gold people saying yeah we're getting into gold and people need to understand that they need to understand how to use this as a tool to have diversified uh, portfolio. So what's the best way for them just to kind of take that step, David? Just a simple old way. Give us a call. There's no pressure, no obligation. The phone number is 844-604-2575. 844-604-2575. We'll send you out a packet. Or you can go to landmarkgold.com. Excellent. As always, David, God bless you, my friend. Have a great week. We'll talk again real soon. But thanks for your wisdom as always. This is Steve Noble on The Steve Noble Show. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward.